We Have Issues is a weekly podcast full of reviews of comics and oversharing. We use grown-up language to make very childish jokes. You can find the show at wehaveissues.net, as well as anywhere else where average to not too bad podcasts can be found. Welcome to episode 121, listener. Nick speaking here. Uh, I'm in my studio at home. It's very late again. It's always very late. I'm sorry. I'd like for real life to stop intruding to this extent and uh, for work to stop taking up the amount of cognitive load it's doing, but doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. What, uh, what I really need is to take some positive control of my life um and uh and yeah get myself in shape start uh start brushing up my uh, profile on linkedin all of that stuff should be happening but i mean if i haven't got the cognitive load to do these episodes for you and you know i love you um sorting out a cv seems like a bit of a stretch doesn't it i don't know anyway this is supposed to be about comics um and i'm going to be playing a little bit with uh, what we mean by comics in this episode. More on that later. Um, you can find the podcast and all past episodes of the podcast at wehaveissues.net. That's on the other 10% site. Um, you can also find the podcast on Twitter at issuespod, all one word. Uh, there is a We Have Issues page on Facebook. There's also uh, the other 10% group. Um, on Facebook, I'll put links to those in the show notes uh, of this episode. As I said, th- those will be at wehaveissues.net. They should be turning up in your podcatcher of choice as well. Uh, the show is Patreon supported. You can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash TOTP. Um, I've got two contributions for you this week. One from George Beedon, one from Robert Headley. Those will be coming up soon. But I guess it's been a, a quite exciting week in comics, or hopefully it's going to be quite an exciting week in comics. It feels very much to me like, bear in mind I haven't been paying that much attention, but it feels very much to me like comics hasn't shit the bed in uh, in at least a week or two, uh, which is very exciting. Um, not normally the case. It might be that I'm not paying enough attention, it might be that the rest of the uh, world and the socio-political climate has sort of uh, lowered the bar itself so that comics just doesn't seem worse. I like as quite so much of a cesspit. I don't know. But it seems that, um, that people aren't uh, embarrassing themselves as much. Uh, if that's not true, if I've missed something, please don't tell me. For now, I'm... Uh, existing in a in a state of grace also exciting uh, i'm going to my one convention of the year next week uh not next week next weekend august bank holiday weekend uh, i'm going to be uh hosting or chairing a panel um with uh my friends ian charman and david Wynn and ollie rose i think is going to be there 
um, for the uh, 10 year anniversary of Orangutan Comics, which is quite exciting. So I'm going to have to do some research on what they've actually been doing all this time because the last time I hosted a panel for those guys, I um I I got very mixed up and it was just embarrassing. I mean, not so embarrassing they didn't invite me back for this one, so I don't know quite what's going on there. But yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to try not to be as disorganised this time. We know how well that goes. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I'm not great at uh, delivering on these. I should try and be more organised this time. Promises I make to myself. Anyway, I'm going to pass you over to Robert Headley, who is uh, going to talk about a comic that I dearly love. Um, there's not going to be a lot of true comics talk in this episode, so um, so yeah, enjoy it while you've got it, really. Hello, We Have Issues. This is Robert here with part one of a Greg Rucker retrospective, which will be me going over all the Greg Rucker comics I have on my iPad that I haven't gotten around to reading yet, and some I've read, like, bits and pieces of, so I'll be reading them in full. Most notably, this means we won't be getting any Wonder Woman or Batman. We will get the Batwoman detective run eventually. But today, we are starting with Whiteout, which was the first comic Greg Rucker ever produced. This is a black and white comic with art by Steve Lieber, and I'm not sure who the lettering was. So this is a comic set in Antarctica, hence the name Whiteout. This makes the fact that it's a black and white comic Work in its favour, which is not something that can be said for most black and white comics. And the art knows this, and the art takes advantage of the fact that there's a lot of white in this comic. Let's just say that. Get that out of the way quickly. But it never feels like there's too much. It never feels like the snow is covering up or being used as an excuse for the artist to just not draw anything. And when he's drawing actually something... It's really great. I mean, I don't think I need to say Steve Lieber's a really good artist, but this is 1999 Steve Lieber, so... Even back then, he was a great artist. This is black and white, and I have trouble telling faces apart most of the time, but it really didn't take me long for me to work out who everyone was in this comic, which is impressive. We'll get to Queen and Country eventually, and I think even three volumes into that, I was still not understanding who everyone was. So, the art's great. What about the writing? Well, the writing, I mean, this isn't weird to say, but Greg Rucker writes a really damn good comic. Now, he'd been a novelist before now, so this wasn't his first writing gig, but even as just a comic writer, this is a damn good first comic. This is a ridiculously good first comic. It's also a very Greg Rucker comic. There's a badass woman who's... Also, you know, solving crimes. There's intrigue. There's mystery. And it all comes together really well. Even with only four issues, the characters feel developed enough. There's never anything that happens that makes you go, wait, why is that a thing? The mystery is a fair play mystery. And honestly, if you haven't read this, I'd recommend it. I'd say go back. Try and find it in a dollar bin or pick it up on Comixology. I think it's only about $5, or it was when I picked it up. 
hope this has been part one. Part two will be volume two of Whiteout. And with that, back to you at the studio. I've read a few comics in the last couple of weeks. Not much has been sticking in my head. I I feel like the quality of comic releases at the moment is is pitched at slightly above average, almost across the board. But um, possibly because of my personal mental state at the moment, not much is is t- like dipping over into exceptional for me. That's uh, totally unfair. Uh, probably to so many comics i i have talked a lot about going back and trying to reread older stuff or read older stuff for the first time and i've done that with a bit of will eisner stuff recently but um again i've i failed to actually get that done but a couple of things i did want to talk about so um and full disclosure, this is a, this is a, a friend of mine, or at least a Facebook acquaintance of mine, who's done this. Uh, there's an, a drawer, a comic creator called Lauren Womack, who trades as Hamster Toy Box on Patreon and on uh, Tapas or Tapastic. I think Tapastic has totally rebranded to just Tapas now, which is kind of weird. Um, which is a web comic site that I know I've talked about uh, on the show in the past. And uh, she has started a comic on there called Pure of Heart. There's only a couple of chapters at the moment. It's about, uh, uh, well, it's basically about a werewolf mythology. It's about a character called Penelope who has inadvertently married into a a, uh, a werewolf royal family. But um, it's it's interesting. I read the I read the second page of it there's literally not very much of it so far the prologue is quite long but i read the second page of it first and what grabbed me about that is that this is essentially the story of a uh of a woman i guess she's in her late 30s um she's not young she's not like the normal sort of protagonist we see in comics where you know a woman in her mid 20s or a man of pretty much any age and a lot of the comics, certainly from these first couple of pages, seems to be suggesting that it's going to be about exploring, actually, aside from all the werewolf mythology, um, the experiences and life of a woman who um, has had to make so many compromises by the time she's in this stage of her life, in her like mid-30s or wherever, um, that like it's not it's not complete resignation but it's very familiar and it feels very realistic to me it's not a completely depressing story and uh uh, lauren's art and style is very light and cartoony it's very the art is very cartoony actually and very cool lots of great um uh acting uh, in the uh, like very expressive acting in the characters' faces um, when they're having these exchanges, but in in the first um, first couple of pages, what you're really getting is a sense that this is going to be more about the, the very much about the human experience of of being an adult and it not really turning out. You thinking you've got everything you want, and then it not really turning out that that's the way it is. Um, which is very, you know, I find very 
uh, comfortable territory to be reading about. It's very interesting and lots of fun. As I said, the uh, the cartooning style is really vibrant, uh, very loose art, uh, but really cool. The werewolf designs are just very uh, Tex Avery esque, almost, which is which is quite interesting. You see a lot more of them in the prologue, and I think the mythos is going to be the werewolf mythos in this is going to be interesting while being quite light touch to the actual story itself it's not too complicated that's not really what the the story's about certainly at this stage but yeah definitely worth a look um it's called pure of heart which is i believe a reference to the old wolfman movies that i really really appreciated those old lon cheney jr movies um and you can find it at uh, what's the address at tapas.io forward slash series forward slash pure of heart all one word i'll put a link to it in the show notes though um i really like the tapas interface anyway uh but you may need to log in well actually i don't think i don't think this comic is there is some stuff that you have to log in to see i don't think this comic is is like that but uh, you can get into it uh, validated via Facebook or Google anyway. So, so yeah, check out Pure of Heart. The other comic that I've been thinking about an awful lot in the last couple of weeks, even though, even though it wasn't, I don't think it was amazing necessarily, and I didn't even know it was going to happen, which again might be a sign that um, I'm completely out of touch. And actually, there have been plenty of signs of that, really, haven't there? Um, it's a, a number one from dynamite it's their latest um the latest uh uh version of the shadow comic this one's actually it's got teen plus oh that's not the that's not the suggested audience that's just the uh the age warning okay forget i even said that it's um it's the shadow but it's written by Cy spurrier uh with art by dan waters and i guess colors by daniel hdr and it's um it's interesting. I didn't. I didn't know this was coming out, and I didn't know that Cyspuria was writing it. Um, Dynamite have been. I think I've, they've been publishing the Shadow comics for a little while now. It's another one of a, a small group of um, old classic pulp heroes um, that that they have the rights to publish. So I think they've got. Um, Tarzan, they might have Doc Savage, I don't know, but it, within within all that, they've got the Shadow, I believe. And he's an interesting character in that he's clearly a precursor for the Batman. Um, like one of the one of the most, he seems like one of the most definitive ones. He's been around for a very long time. He originated in uh, in pulp in pulp radio, radio dramas, and I think probably even though he's a character who's informed so much in comics i think moved into comics relatively uh relatively late compared to where he was in other mediums but he's um he's a vigilante uh his alter ego is a character called lamont cranston there is mysticism mixed in to his uh uh origin and he does he does have uh, nebulous abilities to cloud men's minds and stuff and um what batman really gets from him is the fact that he operates mostly in the shadows and uh a lot of how effective he is is that 
he's kind of almost folklorish in how much he terrifies uh, criminals and his enemies. And um, most of the versions of this character I've read or seen, and my un- my understanding of him isn't that you know my experience of him is by no means encyclopedic, pediac, encyclopedietry. I'm not sure how to say that word. Um, but it, it's been always with a, a kind of a view to towards nostalgia, really. I don't think it's unfair to say that. Even though the, the most unusual uh, approach to the character was, um, and that I've seen, was Andy Helfer and Bill Sienkiewicz and then later Carl Baker, uh, Kyle Baker, sorry, were... Um, doing a did a comic series about the shadow back in i think the late 80s or early 90s which was uh, my introduction to the character and is generally considered quite a seminal work i think um which was told art wise in a very avant-garde way but was very as far as i could tell true to this mythos of this being a character who's been around uh since the early uh 20 20th century yeah the early 20th century evoked a lot of stuff from the 1950s and 1960s was kind of quite timeless it it was a uh, in terms of the art styles used it was a very contemporary way of telling a comic but the characters and the settings wasn't very contemporary it was kind of timeless to that sort of um American, uh, um, the noir esque American city that could have been any time from the 1930s to the 70s or 80s or even 90s. It sort of all blurs. Uh, other t- other takes on the character have been even more traditional, I think. So he's a character that I tie almost entirely to nostalgia. No one's really tried to reboot him, as far as I can tell, or update him particularly. And what's weird about this comic, um, this version of the character, is that what Spurrier's done, um, aided, I think, aided by Waters, uh, ably and and um, and the colorists as well, is he's made it very contemporary. This story is all told from the point of view of someone who witnessed the shadow in action, but the whole um scenario she's describing is it all happens during daylight it's a rip from today's headline sort of a story uh but also you know a late 90s early noughties headlines thing it's a set during a school shooting um a lot of the language and um I, I guess theorizing or discussion of it is couched in very modern terms, um, talking about the sort of, uh, I guess, uh, Gamergate, 4chan adjacent, uh, white teen, mediocre white teen who goes off the rails and starts shooting up a school thing. But it's, it's a subject that comics have been dealing with, um, they sort of started dealing with it in the late nineties. Um, and, and so it's got a, it's this weird, 
I'm not saying that school shootings are a nostalgic subject by any stretch of the imagination, but they've been with us a little while. And so in a lot of ways, for me, it evoked a lot of comics from from back during this period. So it's weird. This version of The Shadow doesn't seem remotely nostalgic about The Shadow the way other versions of The Shadow uh, I have read have been. Um, sometimes to the detriment, uh, sometimes not. It seems like that's just, you know who comics about this character are normally aimed at. But it does seem, it feels very nostalgic to a sort of a late 90s, early 21st century um, uh, sort of comic from uh, Vertigo. It feels a lot like a Vertigo reboot of this character. Um, And it's not, I don't think it's Icebury's like most... Um, idiosyncratic or personal work um, I don't think it's his best but uh, for me the bar with Sysperia is set really really high um, the uh, the the best of his work um, the stuff that I've really liked from him that's come from Avatar it like counts among some of my favourite comics of the last like well for as long as I can remember really and I can remember a really long time Um so to say it's not his best work or not my favourite work by by him isn't like to say an awful lot because my least favourite Sysperia books tend to be better than almost anybody else's comics. But it does feel weird because it feels like, at least as far as I know, he never got to do one of those Vertigo reboots of an old property. Um, and this reads very much like one of them. Um, he's a writer who... At times, the prose he writes has seemed very heavily influenced by other writers, but the sorts of stories he tells and the way he structures things and plots things is very um, specific to him and very uh, uh, interesting and unusual. Um, this this feels like a pretty direct attempt to reboot The Shadow uh, for new readers, and I've not seen that happen with The Shadow and I don't know if it's necessarily. I don't know. I think the the value of it will hopefully uh, of of approaching it in this way will hopefully be revealed in later issues. For what it's worth, with all my baggage about the character and nineties Vertigo reboots aside, and the funny thing is, when I say nineties reboots. I'm not really thinking of those. The thing that this reminds me of the most is Peter Milligan's exceptional run on The Unknown Soldier, which uh, pretty much started with a a September 11th story. So it must have been at least 2001, 2002. And if I'm saying that something reminds me of a Peter Milligan comic, that's normally a compliment. It's normally an incredible compliment, actually. Um... Yeah, in terms of the merits of this comic itself, it's a really tight first issue. It is mostly a character recounting a story. There is a little bit of a twist at the end of it, which um, explains to you why we're here in this hospital. The whole thing is um, is a, uh, I believe, a, a trainee doctor um, telling a story to a man who's incapacitated 
Uh, and the story she's telling is of her uh, encounter as a bystander in a scenario involving the shadow. I don't know if it's going to get more complicated and unusual than that. Um, I don't know how much this is going to play with identity. The hint that it might play quite a lot with identity is what reminded me most of... um, I think I said The Unknown Soldier, the Peter Milligan Unknown Soldier. I meant the Human Target comic he did. Um, Although there have been Vertigo Unknown Soldier books that this reminded me of a little bit. What I don't know is uh, is to what extent the modern, the in, like completely modern setting, there are references to Donald Trump, um, really clear references to Donald Trump and the state of the world today and the alt-right and all of that stuff. Um, to what extent the shadow as a character and the mythos of the shadow as a character uh, will really thrive in that setting. But Sysbury does a really great job with this first issue. Dan Waters' art is for the most part, perfectly good and really sort of comes alive in um, every now and then the, the story will break out from these smaller panels where the, um, the where there's the exposition into uh, a big scene um, of action or a big scene, um, a, 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 you know, a, a big breakout page, full splash page. And Dan Waters' art really works well there. So yeah, I think I wrestled with it a little bit. I had read it before the uh, before last Thursday, and um, I wasn't sure how I felt about it. The more I think about it, the more I think it's going to be really interesting to see where this goes. But but yeah, if uh, if you enjoyed uh, if you enjoyed the uh, that period in Vertigo comics where they were taking old properties and um, com- completely reworking them to talk about modern situations you'll at least get a kick out of this uh, whether it, it whether it's new enough or unusual enough for you will be a completely different matter but i definitely think it's definitely worth a look the other thing i want to talk about in this episode um, is perhaps best prefaced by uh, george beedham talking about what george beedham's going to talk about so i'll pass you over to him and i'll be back afterwards Hello, this is George Beedham. Um, I guess I'd be a recurring guest star if we're carrying on with Nick's hospital drama analogy. Anyway, um, I'm going to talk to you today about When the Wind Blows by Raymond Briggs. Um, the version I've got was published in 1982. Um, it must be around the time it actually came out, thinking about it. Um, so yes, we follow um, a pair of pensioners called Hilda and Jimmy um, as they prepare and survive, quote-unquote, um, atomic war. Um, essentially, the the entire story is set inside their house while Jimmy has been at the library uh, swatting up on the day's events in the local paper with a load of pamphlets on what to do in case of uh, the bomb dropping. For those of you who were alive in the 80s like myself, you will know that this is a very real thing that we were all scared of, um, having the three-minute warning or whatever the hell it was um, in order to get under our makeshift shelters and whatever. Um, Yeah, as 
it's a really difficult read. It's it's harrowing because obviously a pair of pensioners are not sort of designed to do well in um in the apocalypse. Um but as as bleak as it is, Raymond Briggs's artwork is absolutely stunning. And it's got this lovely colour palette that sort of bleeds in t- from being in full colour. Uh, and then after the blast, it's sort of the colour sort of gradually drains out of everything. And you're left with this kind of greeny, browny sludge, but it's still, it's still really vibrant in an odd sort of way. But, um, yeah, um, it's hard to recommend, but it's, it's such, uh, it's such a good book. Um, Maybe I should have picked something a little less difficult to talk about. Um, well, at least the subject matters, you know, back from the 80s. It's not like anything's going to, anything like that's going to happen these days, is it? Oh, fuck. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook as GB Draws. Um, cross your fingers. Bye. Thanks to George for that. Uh, listening to him talk about it, I realised I never want to read um, that book again. I read it at the time, like he did. Um, it was harrowing as fuck. I, I, I remember it pretty well without remembering details, and I also remember I think there was a film as well. Um, highly recommended. I highly recommend it. Uh, but there was a particular way that we talked about nuclear war and thought about nuclear war, especially here in England, um, that was so mundane and grey and sad and terrifying and and mundane in how terrifying it was um, that really, like, bums me out, to be honest. Uh, but what I wanted to talk about um, and I wanted to talk about this before George actually sent that in, but um, but it, it, it's uh, that, so that's quite interesting synchronicity, really. Is um, children's books? I don't think I've talked about children's books on this show before. Um, I do do two grown men with James, um, who's often on this show, who's my podcast spouse, really. And I think we've talked about children's books on there, but. So one of the things I've talked about here in the past, I think, but that I think about an awful lot is how much I both love and envy. Well, I love music anyway. Um, but one of the things I really love and, and, and envy a lot as a writer about uh, songs and songwriting and people who can write songs is that it is the most mainstream media where you can get away with what you can get away with in writing a song, which is if you want to write a whole story and you want it to be in depth, uh, you know, really in depth and, uh, and there to be lots of clarity um, and it, for it to make perfect sense, you can do that in a song, but you can also find one emotion or one scene in a life or a relationship or one aspect of a relationship, or something that's not a a relationship at all. Um, You can sing about crystal ships, uh, like, on the horizon, or or whatever, uh, 
allegory or metaphor or, or whatever you want to explore and you can be as explicit or vague about it as you want in a song and it can still be something that people will listen to quite happily it's almost like people don't expect song lyrics to make sense as long as the melody's nice um you can change tense in the middle of a song um the uh pogue song is it called body of american it's the one that's on a bunch of tony hawk's um tony hawk's games and also um the wire as well it's used really prominently in that it is is completely talking about its subject the whole way through and then and then changes to first person for one verse for like no apparent reason no explanation and it's fine doesn't cause any problems at all you can really drill down into one particular point uh, um in a song or you can just fluff things and it literally doesn't matter like i said people will lap it up and and it will also talk to people and resonate with people at a level um that they won't afford or allow other mediums to do if those mediums aren't making sense i'm not saying that every other sort of storytelling or every other sort of writing every other medium has to be clear and and uh, and follow particular rules but songwriting is the only area where the mainstream version of it can get away with some of this stuff um if you're going to do that in comics you tend to have to go to sort of quite abstract comics or um vignettes or short comics or web comics um if you are going to do that with film quite often it has to be fairly low budget culty stuff because it's very difficult to get budgets to do that with anything particularly big you can't be too abstract in in um in films that are made for mass market same uh and if you do people really really notice it the same way of tv and uh it's not quite so bad in prose but definitely the top 10 bestsellers list will normally be like fairly explicit writing i'm getting towards the end of that first uh, jack creature book um it's pretty great but it's not taking any real risks with um how it's telling a story some people like Cormac McCarthy maybe get away with uh, uh, approaching things in that much more poetic and unusual way. But normally, if you want to write that sort of thing, you know, if you really want to play with form that much and uh, a narrative that much, you have to go into poetry. And I don't think there is a mainstream arm of poetry. Uh, but the only place where you can get, uh, and certainly, yeah, as I've already mentioned, comics as well. The only place you seem to be able to get away with what you can get away with in songwriting in any other medium, I think, is in children's books. So, When the Wind Blows is a pretty down-the-line story. It gets away with exploring grey areas and stuff like that because of the setting, because it's just about these two characters and their perspective. But it's fairly straightforward. But children's books don't have to make any fucking sense at all. And the most successful ones, even if they fall into the and it was all a dream category, the ones that people remember down through the ages 
are weird as fuck. Children's TV is sort of similar, actually. So I said all that about TV, but like children's TV gets away with some of this too. Um, yeah, but children's books, storybooks can really play around with uh, meaning and um, can really play around with reality in a way that um, and concepts in a way that just you're not allowed to get away with in most other mediums. Um, there's been a lot of talk of Bing, which is a TV show I really like, um, and about how messed up that is. Uh, adults always try and come up with rationales for what's going on there. Uh, but what it essentially is, is a story, a very contemporary um, series about children. Uh, but the children are all giant animals and the parents are all these little soft toys that look after the children. Um, and there isn't an explanation. There isn't any sort of continuity or maybe there's a, a series Bible that covers most things, but I doubt the writer of that has ever really been pushed to make any sense of what's going on there. So, I wanted to mention one uh, particular book, because the other thing is that where I'm playing quite fast and loose with what this podcast is supposed to be about is that children's books and graphic novels, although when you, dis- and comics, when you describe the two things, the way you describe them is basically the same. They use art, they use writing, they tell a sequential story. They're both basically sequential art. Um, but normally, uh, most of us can tell at a glance, even if we couldn't explain it to another person, what the difference is between a storybook, a children's storybook, and a comic. Um, and some children's books like blur the line there. Actually, some comics do as well. I remember that when I grew up, in among all of the other comics that they used to have in um, some of the comics magazines I read were the Rupert the Bear comics. And the Rupert the Bear comics were literally a sequence of pictures with writing uh, underneath, sometimes with speech bubbles, but almost never, um, with writing underneath each sequence of, I think, three panels explaining what was going on in those panels. So it was still sequential art. It was it still fit in the comics pages of of publications, but it's more what we'd consider a storybook. But this particular comic that my son has, uh, sorry, this particular book that my son sons have, the Pirates Next Door. Um, what the other thing that's a bit weird is there doesn't seem to be much crossover of artists between comics and children's storybooks when you'd think there'd be loads, uh, not necessarily with uh, uh, mainstream superhero comic artists, but um, the uh, the ability to tell a story in art is, is one that is definitely transferable between children's books and uh, comics, which is what made me think of this particular one. So it's called The Pirates Next Door. Um, it's written and drawn by a guy called Johnny Duddle. Sounds like a made-up name, but I think it's real. Uh, The particular version I have here in front of me is falling apart. The main reason it's falling apart is because it's this beautiful, big, big big-paged hardback, but it has um, these little sound effects things down the side, and within the story, there are... um, 
within the story there are little icons or images that show you which uh which uh, sound effect you're supposed to use at a, that's a dog at a given time uh so that a child a child can read it cuz um and and know when to when to use the noises listen who are that's a, a pirate that's a pirate's little boy so this story is about this tiny little seaside town where um uh there's a little girl who is the narrator and this family of pirates move next door to them and um the people in this tiny little seaside town it's really sleepy it's it's portrayed as very boring react very badly to the fact that there are pirates there the reason i feel more comfortable talking about this one this particular children's book um, on a podcast that's about comics is that the art is much more cartoony and much more clearly evocative of sort of children's comics than it is normally the case in uh, in children's books but at the same time it actually does make use of speech bubbles the main story is um is told through captions which you know happens more and more in comics now as well and has done for like a couple of decades but there are also speech bubbles uh throughout there are panels inside panels it's basically drawn and conceived as a comic uh but i guess i don't know if the i don't know if uh, when you're an artist or a storyteller you you i don't know if there's crossover to the extent that you could write and um draw something and then decide whether you want to pitch it as a comic or a children's book later on, or I don't know how the publication realities of all of that work out. Um, but certainly this could have easily been a comic, really. There are, um, uh, for example, some of James Kachalka's comics that um, have more in common with this than they have with other comics. Um, and this has more in common with comics than it has with a lot of other children's books as well. But the setting as well is, uh, the setting and the situation is ridiculous. These are not real. Th- these pirates, they've got their big pirate ship. Um, it's unclear how they've exactly set up their lease on this place. They're apparently only there while they repair their ship. Um, but there are uh, hidden little details that you don't notice on first reading so for a grown-up reading it it's excellent because you start to you start to notice that for example uh, while the pirates are here and it's a fully fledged family of pirates there's a a mom and a dad and um, an old uh, patriarch old granddad there's the little boy who befriends the little girl um who is narrating the story um and he's got a little sister and there's a dog and it's uh it's um it's very strange i don't think they're raping sorts of pirates i'm not even sure you can really picture them pillaging um although there is some concern that uh at one point that they might have tortured um the postman and made him walk the plank um the locals start spinning some really unpleasant stories about them fairly fairly quickly but yeah the the setup is strange it's unclear how they've ended up renting this uh, suburban house um it's 
unclear what that situation is, what sort of notice period they have to give when they're leaving. Um, it's unclear where they get their money from or how they can afford to do what they end up doing with the money. Um, and exactly what qualifications the father has for one of the jobs you find out he's doing. But having read this book a lot of times now, and um, and doing a comic podcast, it feels like I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't suggest that you, listener, uh, keep an eye out for Johnny Duddle, uh, not the guy, I don't know what he looks like, for Johnny Duddle books, um, especially these children's books, even if it's just when you're in a, a bookshop or something, and uh, try and find The Pirates Next Door. I can't vouch for his other books. You don't need the sound bit. That's probably a bit unnecessary. That's literally the sound of digging. Um, but it's definitely worth looking out for one of his books. Uh, Pirates Next Door is great. I love it. Um, even if uh, even if the story isn't super sophisticated, it is delightfully weird at points. Um, there's a little bit of social commentary in there as well, which is quite nice. And uh, it's not as uh, potentially suicide-inducing as When the Wind Blows. So uh, it's got that going for it. Did you hear, as I was talking about The Pirates Next Door, that I started really losing faith in my rationales and um, my rationales and my reasons for talking about that particular book and and stuff like that? I started really doubting myself. I'm not sure if that's to do with the book or if it's to do with my faith in my own ability to communicate. But anyway, all that notwithstanding, um, you have been an absolute trooper if you've listened this far, listener. Uh, thanks to Robert and George for their contributions. Um, thanks to our patrons. And remember, uh, this is Patreon-supported, so patreon.com forward slash TOTP for that. Um, and uh, I will speak to you in the next episode. Uh Thank you. Bye-bye.